Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina Artel and this is Trailer Talk. I am so excited to welcome back to have G. Oliver King return to Trailer Talk as we will be discussing his work as an actor, an orator, a writer, and he brings to life United States history by focusing on Black history, African-American history as essential to advancing equity and empowerment. He performs the significant writings, the works of legendary and vital uh, leaders. This year, Oliver is highlighting Self-Made Man, which is the motivational speech of Frederick Douglass, which was delivered by Douglass in 1859. In addition, Oliver is going to be speaking to us a bit about what brought him to Sullivan County, New York and the Catskills and how he chooses these texts. Thank you very much for having me again. You're very, very welcome. I also just want to share with our listeners that in Sullivan County, you've been very involved and throughout the region, actually, with performing and with orating these significant texts, which are very important for all of us to learn about, to hear again, whether live as you embody them and these words or through the airwaves. Oliver, what brought you to Sullivan County, New York in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley region? I was born in Harlem, New York. My parents decided that it was getting a little bit too crowded for us there. Um, so my dad bought a home in Queens. We moved to Queens. From there, I grew up, went to high school in Brooklyn. Yeah, I toured the United States and Europe with a theater company for several years. We had toured Mexico with this, uh, the New York Street Theater Caravan under the direction of uh, Marquetta Kimbrell, who you might recognize from her, her very quiet and silent role in The Pawnbroker with uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald. I wound up in Los Angeles after a two-year journey to Mexico. Uh, eventually wound up as a professional dancer with a very wonderful dance company there. What was this, as you just described, this company that you were part of, what kind of work was it? They are called still the uh, New York Street Theater Caravan. Uh, Marquetta Kimbrell, as I said, was a Hollywood actress who was blacklisted because she was from Czechoslovakia. And in the, uh, the McCarthy era, there was all that suspicion about communism. She was married to a United States Air Force captain who had fallen in love with her in Europe, brought her to the United States. She wanted to be on the stage because she had studied ballet, went to Lee Strasberg to study with all the fantastic actors that came through there, Marilyn Monroe, I mean, you name them. Um, just about every actor in any 60s film was a student of uh, Lee Strasberg. She eventually became the head of the drama department at NYU and started this company as a way to reach out to people who were underserved in the arts. We visited prisons, both men's and women's prisons around the country, bringing um, very important uh, theater and drama to them. Not much comedy, but it was all very serious things, uh, very serious uh, theatrical experience for them. 
we visited Indian reservations. We visited neighborhoods and communities that were, uh, I wouldn't say poverty stricken, but of course, you know, underserved. Um, we also had the uh, the opportunity to visit Europe at the 1972 Olympics, where, if you remember, the Israeli athletes were killed in their um, housing. That was quite an exciting and frightening experience. Um, I guess it would I could say it was my first idea of what terrorism could or would be. Mm-hmm. So that ended our journey to Europe quite a few weeks early, and we, you know, had to return to the United States. So Oliver, you're talking about the theater company that you were a member of and performing throughout the country and even Europe and also uh, going to reservations and underserved communities. Could you describe your relationship to what was happening during that time in New York, in the country? Also, you are from Harlem originally. What was your relationship to what was going on during that time? To tell you the truth, I was 11 when we finally moved from Harlem. So from birth to age 11, Harlem was a wonderful place for my family. I had a family with six siblings, um, the mom and dad. We were all one big, happy family. And um, the neighbors and everyone were the kind of neighbors that took care of everyone else's children. You know, you couldn't get anything past anyone. If you did anything that was even the, the least bit suspicious or or naughty, oh, I'm going to tell your mama. You know, it takes, a, it takes a village. And that was really the sense of a village at the time. I don't want to date myself and give you the actual years. Oh, but, okay, um... but, give, but give us an idea, Oliver. <laughs> Come on. I mean, you know, we're not seeing you. Well, I am glad to be healthy and still living at this point in my life. So I'll go ahead and do it. It was the, um, you know, from the 50s and the 60s. We uh, actually moved from Harlem when I was 11 years old. And that was 1960. Oh, let me see. 1963. I call it the year so many people died. Marilyn Monroe, Pope John XXIII, you know, the Kennedys died within a couple of years of that. Uh, It was an exciting time. But moving from Harlem to Queens was a huge culture shock because whereas I had gone to a Catholic school that had students from every ethnicity you could possibly imagine in the United States at the time, and our nuns were all dark-skinned, either African-American, Hispanic, or otherwise— I uh, moved to Queens, the school, all the nuns were Caucasian and they were had a much different relationship with the children. They didn't engage them in sports or activities or anything. They kind of stood around and watched us and gave us orders to do things. It was a big shock for me because um, our nuns in Harlem jumped double dutch with the girls and played stickball and ran bases with the boys. So it was a completely different atmosphere. Anyway, coming to Queens, I think was the first time I started to experience any type of um, racial profiling or prejudice. Um, we weren't used to that, and but we were sort of well prepared spiritually because my parents also had let us know these things. And we had been listening to all that Martin Luther King was saying at the time. So we were aware, but I was still surprised that it was so prevalent. And as I say, I was just 11, 12 years old, and I, I was an excellent student. I'm not bragging, but it was just the way we were, we were educated by the, the, the uh, faculty at that St. Aloysius School in Harlem. St. Teresa's in Queens was a whole different atmosphere. So the um, idea of coming there opened my eyes to a lot of things that 
I had not been exposed to before. Yes. And Oliver, so that would place you, as you say, originally from Harlem, spent the first 11 years there, and then your family moved in 63 or around 1963 to Queens, New York, with a very different experience for you as an African-American man, as you're describing. And and this also puts you right in the 60s with what's happening with social movements. What can you share with us about that? So moving into your teen years in in the 60s and living in Queens at that time and how you're describing a, a representation and, and a community that you experienced in Harlem that you did not feel in Queens and how that impacted you in terms of representation and your own relationship to movement. Well, let's see. We were very aware, as I said, of what was going on around the country. It wasn't as prevalent in Queens, New York, but we were aware of what was going on in the South with the um, the protesters and the marchers being hosed and um, being set upon by dogs and police brutality being beaten and imprisoned and the sit-ins and the walk-ins and all that was going on. We were watching that very closely on television. And of course, having the last name King sort of gave us an extra interest for some strange reason. You know, I mean, Martin Luther King and the King family and um, people often asked us if we were related. I don't, you know, it was just a thing that happened quite regularly. We moved on to a block. I remember my address was 109-38-133rd Street between 109th and 111th Avenue in South Ozone Park. And uh, when we moved into that neighborhood, we were the second family of color on a block of maybe uh, 20 or 25 homes that were all the same, you know, the queen, they all looked, they were all built exactly the same, had the same number of rooms and everything like that. Of course, they were each painted differently and all that, but, oh gosh, you know, there were so many little things that happened. Um, not only did the neighborhood start to change, whereas after we moved in, maybe within another year, another African-American family moved in. Later on, we found out that one of the main reasons was that we were so close to Kennedy Airport and all the homeowners were very angry that the planes were flying over their homes. And so they sold their buildings and things like that. So two things. Um, there's so many. Uh, I'm having flashbacks now that you're asking me to recall this. My mom was quite the activist even before we left Harlem. She was a community activist. She always was doing things to um, engage the community in positive experiences. Bake sales, we call them uh, bazaars, which is sort of a rummage sale, raising money and funds for all kinds of things. My mom even took one of our old baby carriages. If you remember the big four-wheeled carriages with the with the uh, the awning or hood, whatever, yes. on top, mm -hmm. and she turned it into a mobile candy store so that we wouldn't have to cross 7th Avenue to go to the candy store to buy stuff. So she made a deal and she started getting candy and selling it to the kids at a much lower rate than the candy store. Huh. And um, there was a lot of pushback against that, but it certainly helped the kids and the families. I mean, she she rolled this big baby carriage around. I remember holding her hand and walking with her. As I said, I was only I was before I was 11 years old. I may have been five or six and everybody loved it. When we moved to Queens and realized how 
disturbing it was for the airplanes to take off from Kennedy Airport, fly over our homes, rattle our houses, my mom took action. She went to all the community um, agencies she could and rallied to get Kennedy Airport to change their flight pattern from taking off over our homes to going out over the Atlantic Ocean for several miles, gaining altitude, then turning around and flying back over if they were going to the West. Incredible. So you came from a family of activists. And as you're mentioning, your mother, and I just want to add, Oliver, that I we haven't gotten to where you get to where we live now in the Sullivan County Catskills, but I knew that your mother was quite a leader and, and also an advocate here in this County. So this is really wonderful to hear about this origin story. Yes, absolutely. So um, I kind of, you know, um, accompanied her, on a lot of those uh, missions and journeys, but it was such a natural thing that I didn't think much of it. Uh, Of course, as I got older and things came my way, I jumped right in because it was just something that we did. Um, Again, I was one of seven children. My number is five of seven. That's my Star Trek name, five of seven. Um, And um, so I was like one of the younger children. But um, I was very, very close to my mom. So let's see. Uh, Thank you for sharing that, Oliver, uh, about your mom and learning from her about activism and and uh, that community engagement. So I'm wondering, so from Queens, how did you then end up moving into performing, being an actor? And you mentioned a theater company that you were a part of that also did have a kind of political engagement, believed in the power of performance to reach different kinds of audiences, as you were describing. I was always on the stage. As I said, I went to Catholic school in Harlem, St. Aloysius, and just about every holiday they had us on stage for everything from first grade. And I sort of liked it because maybe I got more attention there than I did at home. You know, there was so many kids and I was the younger one. So I was always last on the list for anything. But I really enjoyed making people smile. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a professional setting. It was like a 15 or 20 minute presentation that we do for Valentine's Day or Fourth of July or Christmas or Thanksgiving, you know, always on the stage. And I realized later in life, how much it helped develop character. And as an educator myself, I understand how that works now much better. So that's where my love of theater started, basically in first grade in Catholic school. Then as I grew up and then I went to high school, um, I knew that I had confidence because I had been in front of an audience so many times along the way. And the first play I did as a freshman in my high school in Brooklyn, I was a dead body behind the couch. Okay, and that was not satisfactory at all. I was like, but I was also the only African-American in the all boys school productions. And I didn't know that. I mean, I went to join the theater company. I was a singer, too. I was in the chorus and there were maybe a couple of other uh, black guys in the chorus. But when I went to the theater group, I was the only one. And the the, the teacher was looking at me like, um, can I help you? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'd like to join the, the theater, you know, the, the drama company. 
oh, okay. And he, of course, he couldn't reject me, but he kept looking at me very weird. And so he put me as the dead body in the first production I did. Uh, the second play I did maybe uh, was in sophomore year. I got to throw a stone at somebody. It was a very weird play called The Lottery. Oliver, what you're describing is, of course, a situation where you had a desire. You, you had a drive to be an actor and a performer and to communicate. But during high school, being the only African-American student in the drama club, you weren't given the kinds of satisfying roles that you would want. So I want to talk about this, again, representation, because now you orate and you perform significant works of Black American leaders and mm -hmm. uh, significant people within different fields, whether they were civil rights leaders or they were playwrights or for many years now, you've been doing that. So I'm interested in the connection between where you came from, which you're sharing with us and what you decided to do and what you do now performing these speeches historic is known throughout our county and, and the region and I'm interested in that embodiment of the words themselves. What does it mean to share those writings and that history and connected to where you came from, as you said, growing up in the 60s? There was always the awareness of the, you know, um, inequity between the, the races in our country. There was always prevalent and always we were aware of that, certainly, even living in somewhat of the safety of New York State. Traveling with that company I spoke about, the New York Street Theater Caravan, going to Europe, seeing, you know, uh, experiencing the, 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 the murder of the athletes there and all that. There was, there was so many things going on in my mind as to what I could do that would be meaningful. When I came back from Europe, I had the the lust for travel. I mean, I had seen so many. Um, I hitchhiked around Europe after the uh, Olympic Games ended early that year, and I saw so many things. Anyway, I wound up coming back to New York and then going back to Mexico, where we had toured with the company previously. And um, suddenly, I was offered a job. I was snooping around the theater, uh, the, the, the University of Veracruz, where I was, and I got offered a job um, teaching. And um, I taught acting there for a couple of years. Um, then they wouldn't renew my contract because they hired someone permanently, which was fine with me. But anyway, from Mexico, then I went to Los Angeles thinking, oh, it's right up. It's, it, you know, it's just up, up, up north, you know, so... Instead of coming back to New York, I went up to Los Angeles trying to be the actor. Uh, and this was in the 70s. I'm running around, you know, auditioning and trying to find an agent and all those things suddenly um, didn't pan out. I was taking dance classes at the university or, or the city college there. And the teacher happened to be the wife of uh, Joffrey Holder. And... Um, I didn't know that. Of course, I knew who Joffrey Holder was, but she invited me to join. Can you share uh, with us who Joffrey Holder is? Depending on, um, you, know, you know, your age group, um, this is a cola nut. He was the one who did the commercial. And he also played the uh, 
Bodyguard and Annie. Um, the the original the original musical Annie. He was the one who stood with his arms folded in the background all the time. Um, a wonderful, wonderful person. He, of course, his career is much bigger than that, but that's where we might remember him from. A very ominous uh, gentleman that that protected uh, Oliver, the the wealthy millionaire. So that's who Joffrey Holder was. His wife was teaching at the City College uh, as she had been a professional dancer with Alvin Ailey. Oliver, what you do and what excites me so much with your orations, with performing significant speeches and works from African-American history is inherently very political. And I'm interested in this connection of how you identify and where you came from. From Los Angeles, where I became a professional dancer, that satisfied my need to perform at the time. And I kind of stayed clear of politics in Los Angeles. I was all alone, no family around. And I said, I have to make sure I don't become homeless or, you know, totally uh, distraught or anything like that. So I stayed with the dance company. I did that. And then after a while, um, you know, I stayed in touch with my mom and she decided that she was going to sell our home in Queens move up to the Catskills and open a bed and breakfast. Now, at this point in time, I had been traveling back and forth. You know, I was in Los Angeles for 14 years, but every year or so I'd come home either for my mom's birthday, which happened to be July 3rd, and we celebrated the 4th of July, of course, or Queens. What I love about this, Oliver, I'm just discovering, we were living in Los Angeles at the same time, and now we're living in Sullivan County together. Serendipitous moments? Oh, that's it. Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. So, okay. So she's, you know, I came home and, and I visited with her. Oh no, my dream is to always have a bed and breakfast because my mom was the most fantastic cook on the planet. Literally. I mean, she knew, uh, she knew how to make matzo balls and, uh, <laughs> you know, um, Jewish food. She knew how to make Spanish flavored uh, shrimp and rice. I mean, she had a wide variety of... What else? What were some of your favorites that your mom cooked? Uh, well, definitely one of my favorites was the shrimp and rice, we called it. It was red rice. She, she, It all came out red, and it was very spicy and hot. And then she was a master at cooking lamb, the leg of lamb. And, of course, Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, the turkey would fall off the bone. I mean, it was always delicious. She was an amazing cook. And and my dad was the baker, see? So they, they also worked together on not only cooking, but they were both amazing tailors. My dad was great at making men's clothing with all the belt loops and the zippers and the pockets. And my mom, of course, made all the women's clothing um, with the snaps and the, and the, the uh, bangles and stuff. Uh, what do you call those little flat, shiny? Um, rhinestones? Rhinestones and the other ones, the sequins. Oh, sequins. All those things she'd yes. be doing by hand. Anyway, so they always worked together on things like that. My dad made the most amazing cheesecake, okay? <laughs> um, better than juniors in Brooklyn and um, cheesecake, mincemeat pie and fruitcakes were his forte. Everybody wanted one of his fruitcakes. When I started hearing about people throwing away or regifting fruitcakes, I was like, not my dad's fruitcake. Everybody wanted one <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. So all that was going on. Um, she came and she wanted to open the bed and breakfast. So she moved up here to the Catskills bought six acres of land, which is where I'm living now, and she started a bed and breakfast. I was the only unmarried child, no kids at the time. So I'm in Los Angeles, and I'm working with the dance company, and everything was going fine. But I said to myself, my mom is going to be 70 some odd years old, and how is she going to do all this by herself? 
my biggest question was who's going to shovel that snow? So I decided in LA, 14 years of dance was pretty good for any athlete. You know, any athlete's career may go 20 years if they're lucky. But I was like, a, you know, not wearing out, but just a little tired. I had given it all my best. So I decided to move back with her and help her with the bed and breakfast, which I did. And that is in, I believe, Kanyanga Lake, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Let's let's kind of zoom in for a minute to this moment as you're sharing your history with us. This moment of what's happening in the country, what's happening in relationship to the social and political movements that we've referenced and that are connected to the writings that you perform and orate for audiences. What's most on your mind right now with what's happening? It all goes back to life history or life experiences. When I was working with the street theater caravan that traveled to Europe, we were very politically active. Everything we did had a political statement in context of what was going on in the world at that time. When I came here, I decided physically I'm not going to be on the streets carrying signs anymore. Been there, done that. And things got more dangerous as time evolved. So when I came here, I didn't think that was, you know, I wasn't the young person I was back then. And I I didn't want to go marching. So I decided my mom was involved with a lot of uh, programs and activities in the community already when I came. So she took me to a breakfast called the Frederick Douglass Breakfast, which was sponsored by the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, led by Dr. Lewis Howard. I went to the breakfast and I was totally flabbergasted. It was like 300 people there at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning in the Woodburn Firehouse. And this the is breakfast... Sullivan County, New York, that Oliver is talking about. Yeah, right here in Sullivan County, Woodburn, New York. The breakfast was amazing. The energy was fantastic. The attendees were totally diverse, ethnically, spiritually. You know, there were representations from all the churches in the, in the area. And the Frederick Douglass breakfast was to give or to acknowledge and honor prominent African-Americans in the Sullivan County community. And I was flabbergasted. I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this, really, literally in my entire life. It was fantastic. But it was called the Frederick Douglass breakfast, and there was no mention of Frederick Douglass. And I thought, hmm, that seems interesting. But the award ceremony was wonderful. The whole program was great. There was some singing. There was all all kinds. So I approached the organizers of the event and I said, well, have you thought about anything to do with Frederick Douglass to make him a more prevalent figure in this event? And they said, well, not exactly. We just thought, you know, Frederick Douglass annual breakfast. And I was like, "Okay, well, how about I do uh, maybe next year I could do a small excerpt based on your theme of the year. So that's pretty much where I started to do Frederick Douglass. Thank you so much, Oliver. You're very welcome. Anytime. I've been speaking with writer, actor, and orator G. Oliver King. He brings to life United States history by focusing on Black history as essential to advancing equity and empowerment. I want to thank you again for joining me for this Trailer Talk conversation. You're quite welcome. Anytime. This is one of three episodes with Oliver King. You're welcome to listen to the others by going to the archives. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. 
The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.